0: Hey y'all, it's your storyteller, and welcome back to the Mockingbirds, readings from the damned. So, I'm going to preface this with, I've been uh, drinking a little bit from a a local brewery, Westbrook Brewing Company. Uh, I am currently on my second. Uh, It is called, let me look, Citrus Redacted. It's a tangerine double IPA. Uh, yeah, it tastes like southern sunshine, basically. Uh, it's brewed with um, tangerines, obviously, because of the name. Uh, 8.5% ABB. Uh, if you're ever in Charleston or in Mount Pleasant, they have a tasting room at 510 Ridge Road. In Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. 29464. They aren't paying for this ad or anything. They're not sponsoring me. I'm just drinking their beer and reading a book. So uh but they're they're pretty well known for their IPAs. They've got a lot. And this one's one of my more favorites. I think uh piney IPAs taste like what I think the bottom of people's feet taste like. So, I like the citrus ones. Anyway, you don't want to chit-chat. Let's get into the book. Alright. Back to 1984 by George Orwell. Chapter 2. As he put his hand to the doorknob, Winston saw that he left a diary open on the table. Down with Big Brother. Was written all over it in letters almost big enough to be legible from across the room. But it was an inconceivably stupid thing to have done. But he realized, even in his panic, he had not wanted to smudge the creamy paper by shutting the book while the ink was wet. He drew his breath and opened the door. Instantly, a warm wave of relief flowed through him, the colorless, crushed-looking woman with wispy hair and lined face, was standing outside. Oh, comrade, she began in a dreary, whining sort of voice, I heard you come in. Do you think you could come across and have a look at our kitchen sink? I've got it blocked up and it was Mrs. Parsons, the wife of a neighbor on the same floor. Mrs. was a word some somewhat discountiated by the party. You were supposed to call everyone comrade. But with some women, one used it instinctively. She was a woman about thirty, but she looked much older. One had the impression that there were dust in the creases in her face. Winston followed her down the passage. The amateur repair jobs were almost a daily in irritation. The Victory Mansions were old flats, built in the 1930s, or thereabouts, and were falling to pieces. The plaster flaked constantly from the ceilings and the walls. The pipes burst every hard frost. The roof leaked whenever there was snow, and the heating system was usually running at half steam, even when it was not closed down altogether from motives of economy. Repairs, except for what you could do yourself, had to be sanctioned by remote committees, which were liable to hold up, even in the mending of a window pane, for two years. Of course, it was only because Tom is at home, Miss Parsons said vaguely. The Parsons' flat was bigger than Winston's, And dingy, in a different way. Everything had a battered, trampled-on look, as though the place had just been visited by some large, violent animal. Games and hockey sticks, boxing gloves, a burst football, a pair of sweaty shorts, turned inside out, lay all over the floor. And on the table there was a litter of dirty dishes and dog-eared exercise books. On the walls were scarlet banners of the Youth League and the Spies, and a full-sized poster of Big Brother. There was the usual boiled cabbage smell common to the whole building, but it was shot through by a sharper reek of sweat, which one knew this at at the first sniff, though it was hard to say how, was the sweat of some person not present at the moment. In another room, someone with a comb and a piece of toilet paper was trying to keep in tune with military music, which was still issuing from the telescreen. It's the children, Miss Parsons said, casting a half-apprehensive glance at the door. They haven't been out today, and, of course, she had a habit of breaking off her sentences in the middle. The sink was nearly full to the brim with filthy, greenish water, which smelt worse than ever of cabbage. Winston knelt down and examined the angle point of the pipe. He hated using his hands, and he hated bending over, which is always liable to start him coughing. Miss Parsons looked on helplessly. Of course, if Tom were home, he'd put it right in a moment, he said. He loves anything like this. He's ever so good with his hands, Tom is. Parsons was Winston's fellow employee at the Ministry of Truth. He was a faddish, but active man, of paralyzing stupidity, a mass of massive imbecile enthusiasms, one of those completely unquestioning devoted drugs on whom more even than the thought police... The stability of the party depended. At thirty five he had just begun unwillingly evicted from the Youth League, and before graduating into the Youth League he had managed to stay on in the spies for a year beyond the statutory age. At the Ministry he was employed in some subordinate post for which intelligence was not required. But on the other hand, he was a leading figure on the Sports Committee and all the other committees engaged in organizing community hikes and spontaneous demonstrations, savings campaigns, and involuntary activities, generally. He would inform you, with quiet pride between whiffs of his pipe, that he had an appearance at the community center every evening for the past four years. An overpowering smell of sweat, a sort of unconscious testimony to the strenuous of his life, followed him wherever he went, and even remained behind him after he had gone. Have you got a spammer? said Winston, fiddling with the nut on an angled joint. A spanner? Miss Parsons said, immediately becoming an invertebrate. I don't... I don't know. I'm sh- I'm sure. Perhaps the, perhaps the children... There was a trampling of boots and another blast on the comb as the children charged into the living room. Miss Parsons brought the spanner. Winston let out the water and disgustingly removed the clot of human hair that had blocked up the pipe. He cleaned his fingers as best he could in the cold water from the tap and went back into the other room. Up with your hands!" yelled a savage voice. A handsome, tough looking boy of nine had popped up from behind the table and was menacing him with a toy automatic pistol, while his sister, about two years younger, made a gesture with a fragment of wood. Both of them were dressed in blue shorts, grey shirts, red neckerchiefs, which were the uniform of the spies. Winston raised his hands above his head, but with an uneasy feeling, so vicious was the boy's demeanor that it was not altogether a game. You're a traitor, yelled the boy. You're a thought criminal. You're a Eurasian spy. I'll shoot you. I'll vaporize you. And I'll send you to the salt mines. Suddenly, they were both leaping around him, shouting, Traitor! Traitor! And "Thug! criminal! Thug! criminal! The little girl imitating her brother in every movement. It was somehow slightly frightening, like a gambling of tiger cubs which would soon grow up to be a man-eaters. There was a sort of calculating ferocity in the boy's eyes, a quite evident desire to hit or kick Winston, and a consciousness of being very nearly big enough to do so. It was a good job. It was not a real pistol he was holding, Winston thought. Miss Parson's eyes flittered nervously from Winston to the children and then back again. In the better light of the living room, he noticed with interest that there was actually dust in the creases of her face. They do get so noisy, she said. They're disappointed because they, didn't, they couldn't go see the hanging. That's what this is. I'm too busy to take them, and Tom won't be back from work in time. Why can't we go and see the hanging? Roared the boy, in a huge voice. I want to see the hanging! I want to see the hanging! Chanted the little girl, still capering about, around. Some Eurasian pr- prisoners, guilty of war crimes. "'were to be hanged in the park that evening,' Winston remembered. "'This happened about mm, once a month, and was a popular spectacle. "'Children's always clamoured to be taken to see it.' "'He took his leave of Miss Parsons and made for the door, "'but he had not gone six steps from the passage, "'and something hit him in the back of the neck with an agonizing, painful blow.' It was though a red-hot wire had jabbed into him. He spun around just in time to see Mrs. Parsons dragging her son back into the doorway while the boy pocketed a catapult. "'Goldstein!' bellowed the boy as the door closed on him. But what most struck Winston was the hell- look of helpless fright on the woman's grayish face. Back in the flat, he stepped quickly past the telescreen and sat down at the table again, still rubbing his neck. The music from the telescreen had stopped. Instead, a clipped military voice was reading out, with a sort of brutal relish, the description of ornaments of the new floating fortress which had just been anchored between Iceland and the Faroe Islands. With those children, he thought, that wretched woman must lead a life of terror. Another year, two years, they'll be watching her all night and day for symptoms of unorthodoxy. Nearly all children nowadays were horrible. What was worst of all, was that by means of such organizations as the spies, they were systematically turned into ungovernable little savages and yet this produced in them no tendency whatsoever to repel against the discipline of the party. On the contrary, they adored the party, and everything connected with it. The songs, the processions, processions. the banners, the hiking, the drilling with dummy rifles, the yelling of slogans, the worship of Big Brother. It was all sort of a glorious game to them. All their ferocity was turned outwards against the enemies of the state, against foreigners, traitors, saboteurs, thought criminals. It was almost normal for people over 30 to be frightened of their own children, and with good reason. For hardly a week passed in which the Times did not carry a paragraph describing how some eavesdropping little sneak child hero, as the phrase was generally used, had overheard some compromising remark and had denounced his parents to the Thought Police. The sting of the catapult bullet had worn off. He picked up his pen half-heartedly, wondering whether he could find something more to write in his diary. Than Suddenly, he began thinking of O'Brien again. Years ago—how long was it was? Seven years it must have been? He had dreamed that he was walking through a pitch-dark room, and someone sitting to one side of him had said as he passed, "'We shall meet in the place where there is no darkness.' It was said very quietly, almost casually, a statement, not a command. He walked on without pa- without pausing what was curious at the time. In the dream, the words had not made much of an impression on him. It was only later and by degrees that, that they had seemed to take on significance. He could not now remember whether it was before or after having the dream that he had seen O'Brien for the first time, nor could he remember if he had identified the voice as O'Brien's. But at any rate, the identification existed. It was O'Brien who had spoken to him out of the dark. Winston had never been able to feel sure. Even after this morning's flash of the eyes, it was impossible to be sure whether O'Brien was friend or enemy. Nor it seemed to matter greatly There was a link of understanding between them, more important than affection or partisanship. We shall meet in the place where there is no darkness, he had said. Winston did not know what that meant, only that in some way or another it would come true. A voice from the telescreen paused, a trumpet clear call loud beautiful, floated into the stagnant air, and the voice continued raspily. Attention! Your attention, please. A news flash this moment, arrived from the Malabar front. Our forces in South India have won a glorious victory. I am authorized to say that the action we are now reporting may well bring an end to the war within measurable distance of its end. Here's the news flash. Bad news coming, thought Winston. And sure enough, following a gory description of the annihilation of a Eurasian army with stupendous figures of killed and prisoners, came the announcement that, as from the next week, the chocolate ration would be reduced from 30 grams to 20. Winston belched again. The gin was wearing off, leaving a deflated feeling. The telescreen, perhaps to celebrate the victory, pers- perhaps to drown the memory of the lost chocolate, crashed into Oceana Tis thee. You were supposed to stand to attention. However, in his present position, he was invisible. Oceana "'Tis for thee' gave way to a lighter music. Winston walked over to the window, keeping his back to the telescreen. The day was still cold and clear. Somewhere far away, a rocket bomb exploded with a dull, reverberant roar. About twenty or thirty of them, a week, had been falling on London at present. Down on the street, the wind flapped the torn poster to and fro, and the word Insoc fitfully appeared and vanished. Insoc, the sacred principles of Insoc, newspeak, doublespeak, the mutinability of the past. He felt as though he were wandering in the forests of the sea bottom, lost in a monstrous world where himself, the monster, he was alone. The past was dead, the future was unimaginable. What certainty that a hu- single human creature now living was on his side? And what way of knowing that the domination over the party would not endure forever? Like an answer, the three slogans the white face, the ministry of truth came back to him war is peace, freedom, is slavery. Ignorance is strength. He took a 25-cent piece out of his pocket. There, too, in clear, tiny lettering, the same slogans were inscribed. And on the other face of the coin, the head of Big Brother. Even in the coins, the eyes pursued you. On coins, on stamps, on the covers of books, on banners, on posters, and on the wrappings of the cigarette packet. Everywhere. Always the eyes watching you, the voice enveloping you, asleep or awake, working or eating indoors or out of doors, in the bath or in bed, no escape, nothing was in your nothing was your own except the few cubic centimeters inside your skull. The sun had shifted around, and the myriad of windows, the ministry of truth. With the light no longer shining on them, looked grim as the loopholes of the fortress. His heart quailed before an enormous pyramidal shape. It was too strong. It could not be stormed. A thousand rocket bombs could not batter it down. He wondered again for whom he was writing the diary, for the future, for the past, for an age that might be imaginary. And in front of him, there lay not death, but annihilation. The diary would be reduced to ashes and himself to vapor. Only the thought police would read what he had written, before they wiped it out of existence and out of memory. How could you make an appeal to the future when not a trace of you, not even an anonymous word scribbled on a piece of paper, could physically survive? The telescreen struck fourteen. He must leave in ten minutes. He had to be back at work by fourteen-thirty. Curiously, the chiming of the hour seemed to have put a new heart in him. He was a lonely ghost uttering a truth that nobody would ever hear. But so long as he uttered it, in some obscure way, the continuity was not broken. It was not by making yourself heard, but by staying sane that carried you on the human heritage. He went back to the table, dipped his pen, and wrote. To the future, or to the past, to a time when thought was free, when men are different from one another and do not live alone, to a time when truth exists. And what is done cannot be undone from the age of uniformity from the age of solitude from the age of big brother from the age of double think greetings he was already dead he reflected it seemed to him that it was only now when he began begun to starting ever when he Had begun to be able to formulate his thoughts, that he had taken the decisive step. The consequences of every act are included in the act itself. He wrote, Thought crime does not entail death. Thought crime is death. And now he recognized himself as a dead man because it was important to stay alive as long as possible. Two fingers of his right hand were ink-stained. It was exactly the kind of detail that would betray you. Some nosing zealot in the ministry, a woman probably, someone like that little sandy-haired woman or the dark-haired woman from the fiction department, might start wondering why he had been writing during the lunch interval, and why he had been using an old-fashioned pen, and what he had been writing, and then drop. A hint in the first appropriate quarter. He went to the bathroom and carefully scrubbed the ink away from the, with the gritty dark brown soap, which rasped your skin like sandpaper, and therefore, was well adapted for this purpose. He put the diary away in the drawer. It was quite useless to think of hiding it, but he could at least make sure whether or not its existence had not been discovered. A hair laid across the page end was too obvious. With the tip of his finger, he picked up an identifying grain of whitish dust and deposited it on the corner of the cover, where it was bound to be shaken off if the book was moved. Okay, so we're gonna end at chapter three. One, because it's chapter three and there's like thirty minutes in the chapter. Two, I have just enough of a buzz going on where I can't, like, read the words clearly. And three, both of my eye things are going dead. So, my uh, iPad, which I read on because it has the amazing dyslexic font on it, so I don't fuck up the words too much. And my phone, which I record on, so... um, I have to remind myself to grab my cord from the Red Cross training building tomorrow. So everyone have a good night. And this is The Storyteller signing off. Hey, y'all. It's The Storyteller. And welcome back to The Mockingbirds, Readings from the Damned. Now, first of all, I'm going to apologize. Actually, I'm not going to apologize. I'm drinking a fantastic fucking beer from Westbrook Brewing uh, here in Charleston, South Carolina. Well, their address is in Mount Pleasant, but everyone knows where Charleston is. Might not know where Mount Pleasant is. So I might ramble a little bit, because I've had two of them. Anyway, the one I'm drinking now is called Citrus Redacted. It's a tangerine double IPA. It's a double IPA brewed with tangerine and dry hops. Six pounds of hops. Shit. Six six pounds of hops. What? Motherfucker.